lot of times people think the software is going to manage people. So that flow chart was a PERT chart. It was just a flow of diamonds. We had reporting to the government that was very specific. So I just took what was in that two-inch document and identified who the players were, what were the reporting times. And then that document was blown up for our wall. And with pens and pencils, we would do little lines to where we were. Then when we had executive meetings or the smaller groups, we'd print everyone out and we'd draw lines to where we were at and what our next leap is so that I did use the software but I used it very simply and it really came down to relationships. So you ask about the science and the, the art, people think the science is project management. Really, it's people and communications and having a methodology that serves you. Helping CEOs and business leaders discover the energy to perform exceptional brilliance and positively impact the lives of those around them. Be inspired by world leaders, game-changing influencers, and next-level gurus. This is the Active CEO Podcast, where the ordinary don't belong. And now your host, CEO and founder of Energy to Perform, international speaker and leadership performance coach, Craig Johns. On this episode of the Active CEO Podcast, I speak with the author of a hot aerospace cold case story, The Mystery of Marie, project management leader and speaker on Life is a Treasure Hunt. She studied commercial arts at California Polytechnic State University in San Luisa, uh, fine and studio arts management at Principia College, and is a qualified project management professional. Her career includes being a student advisor and program manager at University of California, Santa Barbara, Project Associate at National Coalition for Advanced Manufacturing, Global Training and Client Service Team at ExuTrain Corporation, and has been the founder and CEO of Project TNT since 2003. I'm honored and privileged to introduce you to an exceptional lady who spent almost 50 years unearthing what happened to her dad when he went missing as she was only a two-year-old. Recipient of highly regarded Project Management Institute awards and feels most alive when she is by the ocean, in view of a river, in the mountains, or on a golf course, Teresa Newton Terrace. Teresa, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Craig. I am just so delighted to share this time with you. Thank you. Oh, I'm really looking forward to it and, you know, hearing where you most come alive, that is exactly the same for me. I, I grew up on a farm with a massive mountain, two and a half thousand meter mountain uh, at our doorstep and, and views of the oceans as well. And, and I play a lot of golf now, so <laughs> we're gonna get along real well. <laughs> oh, it, just a sunrise, a sunset. It's amazing how it can just begin your day, end your day, wash any cares and worries away and, and just inspire your time, even during these crazy times that we live in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. So we're going to go back in time here a little bit. Um, I'd like to know where you grew up and for you, what was life like growing up in a family without a dad? Well, I grew up on the West Coast, uh, specifically Santa Barbara, California of the USA. And, you know, growing up, I was two year old, uh, two, uh, a two year old when my father disappeared and while that was traumatic for our family, uh, he was lost in a shipwreck, and we may talk more about that. Growing up without a father, it's more specific that I grew up without a leader in the family, but I had a mother who had my parents met in the navies, and they both had some morals, some specific leadership capabilities at home. So we have some order mother believed in uh, working together and accomplishing something. And my mother also later in life would tell me about a vision that she saw, and that made all the difference in the world. I also, uh, at some point after she healed, she did marry a man. So I had some stability in my life. Uh, and we ran around in Santa Barbara, California, went to the ocean. I had three brothers. 
So there was a lot of freedom at that time. I actually, though, came to a point and I was I was at the young hippie age. I don't know if people called me a hippie, but school was so easy because we didn't learn anything. We sewed, we basket weaved, and I was getting straight A's for that. And I realized something's not quite right. I also had a couple friends that kind of went crazy and seemed crazy when they were 16. And I went back to a boarding school in the Midwest. And, I, and I'd go home. My brothers also came. So education and learning was important. We went to the Midwest in America for schooling and then came home. And I also, uh, you know, in working, I babysat. That was the best I could do when I was young. But then I waitressed. I was always having a side gig. And uh, I also was an observer of people. So I had boys around, had independence. We went to the mountains. We were by the ocean. There was a lot of fun and education was important when I was young. And, you know, we will talk around um, the incident around your father a bit more later on in the show. First, you know, for me, you talk about your mum being a great influencer and, and leader in your life as well. Who else had a, had a huge influence on you during your teenage years? During my teenage years, you know, one, my grandmother was somebody I loved. I didn't really get to know everything about my grandmother until she was long gone uh, and I was sort of at my own midlife crisis, but my grandmother was close and dear, and I got some special treatment with grandmother. But I also, in school, there were teachers that were close and dear. And as you mentioned, I started at the University of California. That was my first real job. And actually, I was the last choice. They wanted, it's a place that you have so many qualified people and low paying, but this was a low paying job with a lot of responsibility and a lot of work. And they had a PhD they offered it to, they had an MA they offered it to. They knew my family and they had seen me grow up and they saw my character and my work ethics. And they said they'd give me a chance, but I was their last choice. And there again, the university was just a place of learning and fresh ideas. And it gave me a chance. I got to jump on projects. Um, and as a, as a young person, you asked about, you know, mentors. I'll have to say my mother was a big influence, but I didn't realize how much. I had a lot of anger is what I learned later on. But I realized my mother, in spite of me having whatever frustrations because of unresolved issues, she was still a strong moral character. And she forced us to, is it forced? We went to church. We had habits that we had faith in our life. And we had habits that just promote a healthy lifestyle later on. Does that somewhat answer? So I said, there's mother, there's faith, there's grandmother. Those were in my formative years. And later then really starting my first job, again, it was learning a place of learning and trying new things. So. Mm -hmm. And you talk about there at, you know, working at the University of California and serving, you know, serving students, you know, what was involved in that role there? And, you know, you speak, you have quite a lot of passion when you speak about it. So what was it about that role that allowed you to stay there for a full decade and, and really connect with it? So one, I was an academic advisor, as you said, and a program uh, a director with the undergraduate program. I was a first line for 4,000 students in the art studio department. And then later I advanced up to the sociology department with another 4,000 students. And one, I love the students would come and they'd have questions, but you could tell after a while that they didn't know the questions to ask. So I'd ask qualifying questions. So I sort of saw it as a game to find out what did they really need to know and where did they need to go? What did they need to accomplish? because every student was so unique and had different um, capabilities and talents. And, I, and one, I got to do special projects. There was a, a, one, we were losing two thirds of our freshman class 
to bad habits, addictive habits, and just habits they had never been out of school before. And so one project I got on, because I'd been there one of the longest, I was both helping the advisors, I was training both the advisors in a special program once a year, but for the students, um, one of the professors and I helped with the workshop uh, planning team, there were three of us, and we taught, we worked out and then taught a self-leadership class, trying to help resolve and test what to do with these, these freshmen that were just making bad decisions for themselves. So trying to get them to think. And I really enjoyed just helping students that were so promising. They all had, they were academically so strong, but yet they were so young in their thoughts. And what we also learned was that of mind forms from 18 to 26, the mind is still growing up and so formula and they've got to ask questions and tests and they have to make their life their own. So they have to do this to learn, but they're not mature enough to realize fully what the consequences are. So trying to help make a difference. And then just life happened. We, I, had one, I had one student who their sibling was eaten by a shark. So you had emotional students that came or you had a student that had three children and a marriage and a job and they're trying to succeed. So I was a first line uh, person, but I was not a therapist. I would send them to the right place. So I was a catalyst for their behalf, but getting them to the right place that they wanted to. And that excited me. And, and in a way, I feel like that's what I'm still doing, but not quite with students or students of life, it might be. And that's an important lesson for everyone. You know, we should not be the end of the train line. We should be the catalyst to put send people in the right directions. And quite often, we just end a conversation rather than how do we ensure that that person gets to continue their conversation? Yes, it's not always just answering the question. Well, and after 10 years uh, and at that leadership, self-leadership class, I was doing a lot of research because I do like trying to read and trying to know as much as I can. And that's where I went to the leadership, the professor who was teaching the leadership class there. And it happened to be a soldier. Well, and I ended up liking that soldier and falling in love with that soldier. And my, he and our life or my life totally changed. So I enjoy the topic of leadership, but I smile because it's amazing where leadership can take you. <laughs> so you fell into, you kind of fell into the world of project management with that role um, without you probably realizing what was happening. Where did that, where did, you know, obviously once you met your, your love of your life and you moved on from there, how did the world of project management unfold for you? Well, one, we're, we all have projects and especially now it's a project-based economy. And I earned, I learned early that I like these, these efforts that you could see a beginning and an end and you could just work so hard, like a sports activity, work so hard and then take a break. Work so hard, take a break. Okay, so when I fell in love with this soldier, we moved a couple times before I realized I've got to redesign my life because I, I am a professional and I just love being involved. I tried to do my graphic arts. I have a lot of computer graphic arts and I had some success. But then we got to Washington, D.C. We kept moving. We actually moved quickly to D.C. Then we went to another state, back to D.C. And we were going to be in D.C. for just over two years. And that's where, Craig, a mentor said, oh, do temporary work in D.C. Everybody's using temporary work. So I went to one company and I did not like walking to the company, but they offered me a job. But I turned it down because I felt unsafe walking there and I didn't really like the work. I then tempted another place and I was one among a huge big empire and felt like a number in that. They offered me a job, a job, didn't want that job. Then I came to another one, which was NACFEM. It was a, it was an agile small group inside of a bigger national manufacturing association. And they housed 
projects and they were very nimble and in the middle of Congress and doing policy papers. And just my little temporary work just excited me. And they had a project that was two years that my skills and capabilities fit with theirs. And this project was one that was produced from, the funding was from the, the Department of Education. It was a national skill standards project for computer-aided drafters and designers, CAD users. And so my responsibility, one, it was a two-year project. The project had already been developed and funded. And so it had so many things already planned, but how do you develop uh, skill standards. They already had a team around the country, an executive board, and I was not the head person, CJ Beardsworth, a wonderful mentor for me. And also I was her second in command. Our skills worked so well together. We just got the work done. She wasn't high on computer. I was high on computer. We organized small groups around the country that got together and figured out what do CAD, needer, CAD users need to learn in the schools. And I learned about skills, the importance of skills. So that two years taught me skills are transferable. And then also projects they're all over the place and they have a beginning and they have an end, they have phases to them. And there's some, everybody has a certain amount of energy that they're good at. They may be good at the beginning or the middle, or there's always a 10% at the end cleanup and that takes another skill uh, that I'm not the end cleanup, but I can do it. I know it's not my place that, that gives me energy, but I know it has to be done. So those two years of Washington, D.C., we then began to move all over. And that's where I got on Executrain's International Training Group. And they married up with a group, Project Direct. They had a project management workshop, but I also did training facilitation uh, for a variety of different computer programs um, because I was adept at taking a computer program and at least doing something. Does that answer yeah. <laughs> a little bit? You know, it's how I got going in project management and with that group, Executing Project Direct, I did a lot with them. And that's where actually as a sole proprietor, Project TNT was formed because I had some private projects that were my gigs. And then I did a lot with a group of about 10 that we were certified on a certain project. And those that that's group of 10, I actually was the first one and I had such a workload that hired the other ones to help with the workload. But it was our main product was getting teams together with project management. There's three best practices that if people get, one is that projects have to be linked to strategy, the business strategy, or if it's a personal project to your personal vision and mission. So it's important that the projects are linked to business strategy. The second one is you just have to keep getting better, better professional. It's not a skill set. We're all accidental project managers because we all have projects at home and at work. We're all project managers. So the key is just realizing you'll never know it all. And the third main thing is having a methodology, a met that methodology of tools, knowledge, and today techniques that serve you and serve the context that you need to and not be too complicated that you can't use them or too uncomplicated for the situation. So, you know, one, very strategic, the project, you shouldn't waste your time on projects that don't matter. And then always get better, be professional about it, and then have some kind of methodology. So I got to just love projects and we did some great things across the country and actually in uh, 54 states and territories. And that brought me to Hawaii where I, I, I actually became certified 
with the Project Management Institute. Um, and that's the main certifying. So before being certified as a professional project manager, I really was an accidental project manager that had some natural capability. I was trying to learn, trying to learn software. But until I really became certified, I didn't have as many transferable skills that I could scale up and scale down. And so in, in Hawaii with the Project Management Institute, the local group and the international global group, that's where also my capabilities took another leap. Mm. And we hear so, so much around the science of project management. For you, what do you think is the true art to project management? Oh, that is insightful because that is key, the art and the science. So one is the art is realizing it's not about the software. So many times, the very first time in Washington, D.C., they handed me Mac Project. I don't even know if there is a Mac Project. Uh, we were using Apple computers at that time. And they handed me a software that says, you're going to manage everybody with this and I didn't know what this is. I'd never seen. And that was the first time I heard of project management as a skill set. And so I got that program and they said, you're going to manage everyone across the country with this. And I looked at it and I, I looked at the, we had a two inch thick project plan. And I have to say, Craig, I went through it and I created this flow chart and I printed it off. They thought I was brilliant. They thought, and I thought, and I never touched the software again. And it's very, a lot of times people think the software is going to manage people. So that flow chart was a PERT chart. It was just a flow of diamonds. We had reporting to the government that was very specific. So I just took what was in that two inch document and identified who the players were, what were the reporting times. And then that document was blown up for our wall and with pens and pencils, we would do little lines to where we were. Then when we had executive meetings or the smaller groups, we'd print everyone out and we'd draw lines to where we were at and what our next leap is so that I did use the software but I used it very simply and it really came down to relationships. So you ask about the science and the, the art, people think the science is project management. Really it's people and communications and having a methodology that serves you and the context of what you're working in. And it could just be your science is colored post-it notes that might be the best for you and the context of your work. Does, does that give you some insights? Beautiful. Beautiful. So, so talking about communication and people, and we'll swing away from project management here now, um, a little bit, but it will tie in. Every family has secrets, you know, upon, and you, and you spoke about earlier around, you know, your dad disappearing at the age of two and, you know, your grandmother and your family kind of, it never spoke about it, right? So it was like, dad's gone, we're not going to speak about it and you just move on with life. When you received the scrapbook from your grandmother that had been kept hidden for many years, what was your first emotion? Interesting because, Craig, we grew up without emotions. We were thinkers. We looked at facts. So in some ways, the first was, you know, one of the first, I didn't know what happened to my father. So in some ways, I was numb. And then as I looked at it more, I wondered, well, what happened? I had heard the echo in my mind from a child, what happened to dad? There were pictures, there were news articles. And as I read them, nothing made, nothing connected perfectly. And I also, what surfaced, so emotions didn't surface at first because we didn't talk about dad. And, and so the scrapbook 
started to, it was like a crack in the window, but we didn't talk about dad. But because of this scrapbook that somebody had found and sent to me, they thought that it might be helpful. I was able to sit with my mother, the scrapbook grandmother had compiled. And then she came to a point in her life, she couldn't deal with the never ending, why did something happen? And, and what happened to my father who disappeared? And it, she came to a point and she put all the pictures the scrapbook and hid it away. So one, because of her scrapbook though, I was able to sit with my mother and I was able to get her piece of some of the story because we didn't talk about dad. It wasn't like it wasn't allowed. We just were kids, we lived lives. So you asked about feelings. I actually, I really didn't start thinking about feelings and I didn't realize that I was possibly feeling less. <laughs> I don't think that's the case, but I, we got to a point in Hawaii, I'd gotten the scrapbook and my mother uh, took ill and was lost. Uh, she died, she was in San Francisco and it was a very tough six months. And then we were supposed to retire in Hawaii, had a wonderful life there. My profession, I was real happy where it was going with the Project Management Institute, the local group there. But we ended up moving to uh, Little Rock, Arkansas. My husband had his um, last command there. And it's actually because of moving, even though moving from an island to the middle of the country, that in Lowe's is a lot of change. But because of losing my mother, my husband must have seen something and he recommended I take a grief share class. It happened to be at a local church here. It was a, a national, international program. And I took that thinking, oh, I, I know about grief. Uh, I'm fine. And it was the last night I was just doing fine regarding mother's grief. I was processing correctly, I, I would say. But the very last night had to do with childhood issues, childhood loss, whether it's from divorce or death, but this was grief. So it's a big change. And I'll have to say, Craig, I had so many emotions, those emotions that maybe should have surfaced when I opened the scrapbook, all of a sudden, so much emotion. I had been interactive and communicative on all the other meetings, but that night I wasn't. And I realized I had unresolved issues and I started learning about feelings that I had blocked and shoved down. And so intentionally that class and those emotions are a trigger that do trace back to the scrapbook. Um, so there were emotions, but I was numb at first there. Mm -hmm. But the scrapbook opened a window and later I did go on a quest. You certainly did. So uh, before we go on that, that quest, you know, your dad, what did you know about him? What was, what sort of work did he do? What was his life like before um, that uh, event in 1960? Well, what happened in 1960 was there were seven researchers and scuba divers on a 42 foot vessel. It was a World War II landing craft that was customized uh, for sporting goods. So it was a civilian vessel. And I always knew that there was a scientist on board that escalated the entire story. So my dad was a scuba diver and an engineer. And I knew that he was a scuba diver and engineer. I, I did think growing up that engineers work with engines and my dad did work with engines. So I thought he wasn't, he worked with engines. Uh, and that's a little how I smiled because our childhood thoughts and perspectives are different. And on my quest, I learned, you know, so one, I thought, dad, I know he's an engineer, a scuba diver. I knew that the scientist was the most important on the ship and the whole story was escalated because of that. And eventually I knew dad disappeared and the scientist disappeared, but there were, and the captain of the boat disappeared along with the uh, lifeboat disappeared. The boat itself was never found. It disappeared but eventually four bodies did surface. So dad, what I do know, he was he had four years in the Navy and he and mom met and he seemed to be from what I knew, uh, considered a good man. It wasn't until my journey and interviewing different people that I learned more of just, he was a solid, good man. Um, 
I knew he was young. He was 29 years old. So my mother and dad had four children in a very short time. And he was in the Navy and then got his uh, engineering degree before before moving to Santa Barbara. And that's where I went to San Luis Obispo. And that's where he had graduated with an engineering degree at the California Technic University of San Luis Obispo in California. So he was just active with scuba diving and hunting and fishing and on the boat were his friends. They were the the six, uh, five of them were his friends that he had grown up from a childhood. They had gone hunting, fishing and scuba diving and skiing and and done so many things together. So it was impactful to other families, but I didn't quite know that until the scrapbook. I really just knew dad had disappeared. And the myth we were raised with is that the Soviets would want to kidnap the, the scientists because supposedly they were doing something to track submarines. That was something I had heard as a child that there were submarines out there and a submarine might have kidnapped them. So as everyone has childhood and family secrets, mine's a little unique because of, you know, dad's disappearance mm. and because of the myths. And then also, um, you know, the Soviets might have kidnapped him. That was the myth. Mm. And, and so you, you then kind of made it your bucket list to uncover the mystery of your dad um, and went on a 50 year journey um, which ended up in the mystery of the Marie um, and it was, sorry you didn't then go on a 50 year journey it was it become <laughs> part of a 50 year journey uh, and the Marie project initiative tell me what what was how did that kind of you know obviously you've got the scrapbook you're starting to you're learning your emotions what was then the trigger to go you know what I must find out what happened here some question because there was a trigger. One, some was just little steps, baby steps, um, trying to figure out what's in the scrapbook. And it was a Raytheon related project team that they were doing research out in the ocean. So it was a civilian activity, but it was a Raytheon related project team. And Raytheon, I believe, is international uh, with about a 30,000 um, employees. Um, they're a government contractor. So at one point, I, as a project manager, I just knew that it was a project. So they'd have a fact sheet. They'd have a fact sheet that would list clearly what happened. Here's the risks. And and this, this is the, the, both the benefit and uh, opportunity that they were trying to accomplish. So I approached Raytheon and I approached them several times and several times they had a wonderful administrative assistant but it was because of a lack of response that escalated the curiosity um they were always very gracious but never would i get a phone call back never an email never a response i could tell lawyers must be involved uh, so that was one trigger but also I went to visit Santa Barbara and without a dad, without a mom, I stayed with an uncle that I had never really stayed with. And we didn't talk about my dad. It was my father's only sibling. And I decided to suck it up and ask him about my dad. And actually he had me get on the back of his motorcycle. He didn't, we didn't talk about dad. We went on a motorcycle ride and we stopped by a bakery and uh, he had to, some business there. And at the bakery, I learned about there were groups that met at the bakery and just talked. And I found out there were retired Raytheon engineers that m met at a certain time. And so I put it on my brain to be there at that certain time. And actually that certain time led to a whole weave that my uncle and my aunt had actually known one of the top engineers that I would be led to both through that bakery visit, but also it would circle down round, back around to my uncle and aunt. But because of that bike, that bike ride, motorcycle ride, my uncle took me down to a memorial that had been put um, by the ocean just like months before. 
And at first I was angry. I thought nobody invited our family. And apparently it was for all people, very generic. Everyone lost at sea. But one of the sculptures had done it in honor of his friends he had lost on the Marie. So one, that bike ride and asking my uncle about what happened to dad, a question nobody had ever asked him. We went and sat at the memorial and we started talking. And within three days, I met a whole group of engineers. There were engineers who had been there in 1960 and they shared with me what they could. And I was able to also circle back and record their stories that they could share. They were all not young people, but they had good stories. So it was because I asked the question, what happened? And then I just kept asking more questions and I found mentors. Once I had no questions that weren't answered, I had a mentor that said, have you tried the National Archives? And I hadn't tried the National Archives. So I went to the National Archives in Washington, D.C., and I found out there were National Archives across the country, and there were military archives. So that mentor also had another mentor who mentored me in going to the archives. And on several journeys, um, the book, I have to compile some of the adventures and the learnings together. But also that same original mentor on my journey also taught me how to circle back and actually record oral histories. There was a, just a public brochure that uh, she had used to do her first interviews. She had done a couple projects so that I learned how to do a simple interview for a simple story and then also learned about these archives. But it also was asking the question, what happened? Mm, so you're going on on this journey and it's, you know, and you speak around this as well, where life becomes this treasure hunt in a way where you would keep trying to seek and you would find something new. And, you, you know, we, we're going to probably run out of time to really delve into your story too much and which leaves the opportunity for people to come and purchase your book and find out a little bit more. But there was, the information was declass, uh, wasn't, was classified still, is that correct? A lot of it. One of the archives, a military archive uh, and military public affairs officer, I was asking them what happened. I found out the scientist had been 14 years on one military base. And that's where they said, the historian said he was there, but he was not theirs. And he also, they also informed me that it was a black project then. It's a black project still. And oh, Craig, my journey that's told in the book does show that with the archives, I got all these boat logs and logs, and I was actually able to piece together two missions, a public mission and a private mission a public timeline, a secret timeline. And those two timelines intersect by one minute. And it's me trying to find out what happened with that minute led to the military base. And I've also learned to be, just be grateful for the information I have. And one thing, as you said, I, you know, this was, um, it consumed a lot of my life because one, I was having a wonderful time at it. But so, so I, I think that answers your question, but I was thinking that, you know, one, my, my passion is project management for the business of life. And that might be a personal project. It might be a family mystery, a family secret. It might also be a business. Uh, and I, I have a yes, simple seven-step methodology that I give it away because I want families and individuals to stand strong. And it can be with a simple method, a simple process of seven steps. And actually, there's that's that simple method that helped me on this journey. Actually, I go back to Hawaii. When I was in Hawaii, with the Project Management Institute, the local group there was very new and they wanted to host a yearly conference. They hadn't done a conference yet. They were having just monthly meetings where they'd have a speaker come and I got on the board, was voted on the board and I was the special projects 
um, guru and trying to figure out what I could, they said, just try different things. So I started hosting a breakfast, a breakfast that I realized we need interaction. Networking was popular. And so I realized, okay, everybody loves breakfasts. Who likes breakfast? So at the monthly breakfast, I, everybody would come order their breakfast, and then I would introduce a five-minute topic. And then that five-minute topic, we would just chit-chat at to just being a hostess to get the conversation going. So when it came to the yearly conference, this one gentleman that I really respected, he was uh, high uh, mucky-mucky with the Navy in the IT department. And he said, you know what? We need a one-hour best of the best practices in project management, you know, and that's Teresa. She needs to do one hour best of project management. And then I'll do this hour. And then, you know, another person do another hour. And I did an hour of the best practices, basics of project management. And I got such good feedback and that one hour best practices made so much sense. And when we moved from Hawaii to Arkansas, my husband was the commandant of the National Guard Professional Education Center, which services uh, 54 states and territories of uh, the United States. And it's a learning center of professional skills, logistics, leadership. And they didn't have project management, but they had leadership and facilitation. I was asked by my husband to leave my professional job and become the family program leader. And I was in a real tough place because I could not get into the military system and I was not the leader of the families, even though I was supposed to influence the families. And during that time that I was the leader of the family program and in a rock and a hard place with influence, but no authority, I used those methods over and over. I did have a staff and we, we were given a small program, but it had no clarity to it. And so over and over, I both used the basic methods for my own methodology because I couldn't get into the military system and I couldn't, the families were the families. Families, Craig, are so messy. They're complicated. Uh, every family is unique. And we had families, we had wives that spoke no English. We had soldiers that would go off into their communities and help with hurricanes, uh, whether it was like hurricanes in Guam or the Philippines. They had assignments that uh, we had uh, Puerto Rico people come in for leadership skills. And I really honed those basic skills because I had thought project management was about data. I was into data. And it's again there that I learned about these emotions. And I also learned that projects are about relationships. And it's using just the basic methods of building communication and relationships that I used over and over. And during that time that I was in the trenches with families, my heart was moved and realized how important families are to the stability to any household. And one, we had to set up what in the heck was our strategy? What was our North Star? Nobody had it it defined for that location. And I realized our goal is to create families that were self-reliant and responsibly interdependent to navigate life and specifically the military life. And I have to say, we started with just 60 quarter. I didn't know what to measure. I, I did know we've got to prove that we're making a difference. So I, I did try to figure how do you measure relationships? And uh, Dr. Deming said, if you can't measure it, then I can't remember the rest. It's not worth measuring. Uh, but I realized, how do you measure relationships? So we started measuring contact hours. And we started with 60 contact hours. And then by way of just putting the right pieces together, we ended up with 2,868 contact hours per quarter. And we did so just by coffees, people getting together, 
that wanted to, monthly meetings. We had a newsletter. I had to gather emails to have a newsletter. We had one soldier that went over um, somewhere. We could not contact his spouse. And in the army over in Germany, they had lost a spouse. She had died while the soldier was gone. And he found her two weeks later when the soldier returned. We did not want that to happen. So we had a soldier leave. We had a spouse we could not get in contact with. So that triggered, we've got to have contact information. And I was in a place I could not be given the contact information. We had to build it. We built it by relationships, newsletters, uh, giving an identity and a purpose. And I taught my one hour project management class, but I taught it as reaching your goals because really project management projects are have goals. There are goals that are like North stars, more like a strategy of vision. There are also goals that, uh, that are like a treasure chest. And that's what I love. Why life is a treasure hunt because I want to fill it with the treasures that I create and I make the treasures being people and relationships. It might be a book, uh, a story, knowing a story, knowing who I am. And I am a whole person now that my mind and my emotions are, I hope, aligned. And if they're not aligned, I try to get them back in line. <laughs> Uh, beautiful there. And, and look, you know, there's so many great things coming out here that you can learn from the mystery of Marie and, and also connecting through with Teresa as well. We all know smart people have great answers, but the most successful people ask great questions. When was the last time you did something for the first time? <laughs> Mm, that is a great question. Well, Craig, water connects all of us. And a while back, I joined a group of maritime museum historians and uh, archivists and authors like myself. And we connected a while back in Bermuda where I got to scuba dive a Marie. There's three mysteries of Maries around the world. One is off of Bermuda. There's one that was a ghost ship off of the UK, Portugal, and then my mystery of the Marie of the uh, Pacific. So I don't know where my Marie is. I got to scuba dive the Marie off Bermuda, but that same group last week uploaded to Facebook, a hundred different people from around the world came together and we each recorded a bit of the rhyme of the ancient mariner. And I was able to, I have right around number 25 minutes. It's an ancient rhyme about a mariner telling of his adventures and he learns about love and loss and life. And I think he's a little tipsy when he tells it, but it's a grand, it's a grand uh, ballad. And I'll have to say, doing it, it was the first time I'd ever done it, connecting with this global group that we were all connected by interests of water. And then, and it is a COVID project and then to have it uploaded. And I myself, I could have read two verses all by myself, but I love connecting and doing things with groups. So I also, for the first time, ran down to a local maritime museum and gathered a few of their people. And we read the two verses together because I think together we can have, um, we can have more fun. Beautiful. What is the one question that you would love to solve? Mm. Craig, I believe world peace isn't possible without peace in one's families. So that my question, it would have to be how to promote peace in our families so that we promote peace in the generations to come. Yeah, I like that one. For you, what is your definition of living an extraordinary life? <laughs> Well, I think you've already said it. I believe life is a treasure hunt so that living an extraordinary life, I'm going to be treasure hunting to the last day. I'm going to be curious. What's the next treasure? <laughs> Beautiful. Teresa, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today and just really enjoyed 
um, you opening up around your story and kind of the emotions and different things that have happened in your life and, and how life is a treasure hunt. How can people learn more about what you do and what is the best way for people to connect with you? Craig, I'd love to join everyone and keep the conversation going. They can find me on LinkedIn under Teresa Newton Terrace. They can find me on Facebook at projecttnt.llc. They can follow me there. And then website, well, you can find the book at mysteryofthemarie.com. I also can be found at ptntglobal.com. Fantastic. So we'll put them in the show notes so people can uh, connect with you easily. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today, Teresa. Uh, you have lived an extraordinary life um, from someone who just loves serving at school and, and, and figuring out that whole project management is really life management and dealing with people and relationships and how you're able to bring that through into not only the workspace, but then into your own journey of the mystery of the Marie and finding out or finding as much as you can out about what happened to your father uh, on that day in 1960. Um, to hear your insights in the way that you reflect on the, the different sort of uh, things that happen in your life to you know, uncover just a little bit more and a little bit more gem and another piece of treasure here uh, is really insightful. And I think people don't ask enough questions at times. And that's where the true learning, that's where the true life happens. So I just want to acknowledge you um, for sharing your story. Uh, it's been a real pleasure. And thank you very much for joining us on the Active CEO podcast. Thank you, Craig. I'm just honored. Thank you for listening to a brilliant conversation with Teresa newton Terra's Mystery of Marie on the Active CEO podcast. Now, it's really fascinating when people talk about companies, they talk about their mission, their thing that they're doing. But they tend to explain it over a number of different words. And for me, I think it's so important that your mission is something that people can remember easily, not only within your business, but also externally as well. And so what I would highly recommend to people is they focus on a mantra, like a three word mantra or a three syllable mantra. So it's easy for your team to remember. It's easy for people to catch. And that's so, so important. What is the heart and soul of what you do? So for instance, at Speakers Institute Corporate, our three word mantra is inspiring great leaders. That is our mission inspire great leaders all right so keeping it really simple people remember in three so much easier than they do multiple words so my encouragement to you is to look at your company what do you do and see if you can put that into either three syllables so it could be two words that are three syllables or one word that's three syllables uh, most of the time it will be three words for people to be able to explain what they do so quickly and easily that's memorable all right if you need help in developing your mantra mission then please contact me at craig at nrg2perform.com or click on the contact page of craigjohns.com.au website and together we can make sure that you're memorable now coming up on the next episode we have a, a wonderful guest who is going to be uh, you know talking about leadership talking about how we can delve into the world of influence. So I look forward to uh, bringing you an inspiring, great leader. So thank you very much for listening today. My name is Craig Johns. This is the Active CEO Podcast with Ordinary Don't Belong. Join the Active CEO movement by visiting www.nrgtoperform.com. That's nrg2perform.com. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to tag in NRG to perform. Leave a review on iTunes. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the NRG to perform Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next Active CEO podcast where the ordinary don't belong. <laughs>